0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we are going to once again leap into the exciting and heady world of Last of Us leaks, copyright law, and everything else. If you aren't familiar with this story, I've done a couple of videos on it now, including asking the question, is Sony illegally using the DMCA to muzzle these leaks? But suffice it to say, last week, some party somewhere, which now Sony is saying is a group of hackers, got into the Naughty Dog or Sony servers and released a bunch of different scenes, screenshots, script elements of The Last of Us Part Two, Sony's big exclusive game that they are now releasing next month. And part of this discussion was all related to what the legalities are of talking about these leaks, talking about their existence, talking about their contents. And the reason I made this video is that I was seeing a number of YouTubers and various people across the internet get struck, get DMCA takedown notices placed against them for conversing about what they feel about the leaks, not just the news item that the leaks happened, but what the contents of the leaks are and how they feel about them. And one of the things I will say before I dive into this again, is that it doesn't matter whether or not you agree with what these people that have been struck by Sony or Naughty Dog are saying. What matters is, does Sony and Naughty Dog comport with the rights they have under the law? And to me, that's a problem and it's a continuing one. And I've got a little bit more to say about that because I think we can also add YouTube to the picture of somebody that, if isn't actively hurting these people, they certainly aren't helping. I followed up this video last week with another video talking about Sony Putting out all of these letters and claims for previous leaks, this one in respect of the emails that got leaked out in 2014, 2015, and essentially ordering every major media outlet not to report on them because they were stolen information. And you can see from the philosophy that they espoused back then that they have continued along with that to today. And as I looked at my Twitter, as I looked at my social media this morning, I saw that this continued to be happening across the internet. I've pulled up the video that Jeremy over at Geeks and Gamers put up showing that he got a copyright strike, attesting to the fact that he only ever talked about what was in the leaks and didn't show a screenshot, didn't play a video, which is what raised my alarm bells when I was talking about this issue in the first instance. But... As the weekend proceeded, you could see this more and more. You saw somebody called Lethal Lightning get struck twice, at least once for this particular issue. You saw another person named mirta 0 on Twitter that says that Naughty Dog has filed a false DMCA against me, and this person was going to file a counterclaim. Now I don't know this channel. I don't know what was in the video. As always, we take all of this with a grain of salt because one of the problems with the strike process is that somebody like me who analyzes these things, who looks at fair use and asks these questions, can't look at the video as it existed before the strike because it was struck, it's no longer accessible, and these parties could change something. They could tell us any given story, But one of the things that's happening right now is that so many of these people are saying, hey, I never showed anything. I only talked about it. That it seems to be that Sony is attacking these various places, including Reddit and YouTube and Twitter that even talk about what is in the leaks. And as we talked about last week, as we're going to talk about today, that is not what is protected by copyright. Copyright only protects the expression of something. So as an example... I haven't looked at the leaks for Last of Us Part 2, so you don't have to worry about any spoilers here. But if we say it was leaked out halfway through Last of Us Part 2 that Joel and Ellie get abducted by aliens and taken to a different planet. And what happened in these leaks is that cutscenes that showed that abduction, maybe showed that different planet, were revealed to everybody. That became a news item. And then if I had a video that talked about the fact that Joel and Ellie are going to be abducted in this game to come out, That's not copyrightable. That's a fact. That is something that exists in the narrative. But if I were to show that video, then we have to get into a fair use analysis. And that's a place where a lot of these YouTubers sometimes trip over the line, as we've talked about in virtual legality. A lot of YouTubers that do things like react to other videos oftentimes are not using them in a way that I think comports with fair use, and they are rightly getting kind of exposed and getting takedown notices in specific instances related to that. But if you're just talking about the facts or the underlying realities of that narrative, you shouldn't have to deal with a copyright takedown notice. One of the things that's happened as part of all this is that it's become clearer and clearer that the takedowns that are actually being issued in respect to these discussions are overly broad. And you heard this described in various places on the internet, but I brought up one picture that was put out by, I believe the name is Some Other Guy, and he actually showed the entirety of what happened to him. And you can see here, he's got a six minute video that was claimed for six minutes, 609 to 608. They claimed the entire video and the description of the content used is just The Last of Us Part 2. Now, again, this video was struck, so we can't actually see what was said and what wasn't said. But we can tell that it is very unlikely that all six minutes and eight seconds of this video included content from The Last of Us Part Two, unless he just showed a cutscene or just put up a screenshot and didn't say a word for the rest of that time. You also see that this was not done by a proxy. This was actually done by Sony Interactive Entertainment of America, which is part of the story as well. But what makes this so interesting so many people wound up coming into my comments to my previous videos, seeing me on Twitter, otherwise asking me these questions, is that the counter notice procedure doesn't appear to be working. And one of the reasons that it's not working, and we're going to talk about a couple of the reasons, is that you have to be able to tell the provider, the service provider here being YouTube, that the copyrighted material that was identified was mistakenly identified or that the owner doesn't have a copyright in that material. And when you've got a copyright owner in Sony and Naughty Dog that says The Last of Us Part 2 is our copyrighted material, which is unequivocally the case, they own the copyright in The Last of Us Part 2, period. Then if they just identify the whole video, it becomes very, very difficult to counter it, to tell people how they are wrong, especially YouTube, who we will see isn't so interested in listening in the first instance. If we look at the DMCA, which I've pulled up right now, One of the ways that they try to get around this, that they try to address it so that this kind of thing doesn't happen, is that they mandate when you are claiming infringement that you identify the copyrighted work claimed to have been infringed. Now, Sony, and clearly YouTube to some extent, feels that just saying The Last of Us Part 2 is enough to show that that's the copyrighted work that you have claimed to have been infringed. But that isn't enough, right? You can't just say, I have The Last of Us Part 2, so you aren't allowed to talk about it. We know that intuitively. We know that even anything that's been released in trailers, we can say it appears to be related to Ellie. It appears to be some kind of revenge mission. These are all in trailers. But if you start talking about things that are leaked, that doesn't change the analysis. The facts are still the facts. Joel and Ellie get abducted by aliens. We can talk about that. And that was supposed to be part of the notification. You're supposed to get that granular detail. Instead, you don't get that. And you don't get anything other than identification of the video that you want struck down, along with purportedly a statement that you, Sony, have considered good faith and fair use and have found it to be wanting, to found it to be lacking in this particular instance. And we can see, as we've talked about before, that Google's notification requirements exactly mirror this, that you have to put forth in your complaint a clear and complete description of the copyrighted content you're seeking to protect. And if you come in to a discussion of The Last of Us Part 2, regardless of whether the origination of the discussion facts is something that was stolen from you. And as a corporate lawyer, I'm entirely sympathetic to the fact that either somebody internally breached their contract with you, or now as being reported, someone externally Manage to find a security vulnerability on your servers or elsewhere and grab that information from you. That is to be derided as someone that believes in good faith, fair dealing, and the law. And I deride that. I don't like that that happened. I don't like that that happens to anybody from people stealing target credit card information to people stealing this information from you. But once it is out there, once it is a fact, once it is known, you don't have the right to claim copyright infringement where it doesn't exist. As we see from YouTube help, be sure to consider whether fair use, fair dealing, or a similar exception to copyright applies before you submit. And that would include the fact that you didn't use the copyrighted works at all. As I put in the thumbnail, YouTube actually does admonish claimants here. It says, do not make false claims. Misuse of this process may result in the suspension of your account, or other legal consequences. But as we'll see, as we go back to Myrta, 000 here, she filed, or he, I always never know with the Twitter avatar, filed a counter notice with YouTube, and this was the response they got. Thank you for your counter notification. Unfortunately, it's unclear to us whether you have a valid reason for filing a counter notification, so we won't be able to honor your request. And I had never seen this screen before. So as a lawyer, I say, wow, that's interesting. What does that even mean? Because I know the DMCA. I know what the elements of a counter notification are. You give a signature. You identify the video that you think that was removed wrongly. You make a statement very similar to the one that is made by the original claimant where you say, I I declare under penalty of perjury. That I have a good faith belief that the material was removed or disabled as a result of mistake or misidentification of the material to be removed or disabled. You give this other identifying information and that's it. That's all that is necessary for a counter notification. So what does it mean when YouTube says it's unclear to us whether you have a valid reason I gave you a statement under penalty of perjury, or if I didn't, then your system is wrong. And YouTube, you're doing that incorrectly. I'd be happy to, you know, give you a consult on that in terms of compliance with the DMCA. But if you don't need that consult, then you collect this information and you have a valid counter notification. What are you talking about, YouTube? And we can go find a little bit more clarity here. It says, hey, when you want to submit a copyright counter notification, you should do the following. Only submit a counter notice if your video was taken down due to a mistake or misidentification of content. Okay, well, the mistake here is that they didn't identify any content. So it should be a fairly easy thing to certify if you were only discussing things and didn't show any screenshots or videos. We'll get to that in just a second. But YouTube follows this up. It says YouTube requires certain info in your counter notification. Your counter notification must meet all legal requirements. That's what we just talked about. But it also has to do this, that YouTube added on its own recognizance. Clearly explain your use of the copyrighted content in your own words. If you think the content was identified as a mistake, explain why. I have to be honest here. I'm not representing any of these folks. As you'll see at the end of this video, none of this is to be taken as official legal advice. This is all informational and educational, but I don't know precisely what YouTube wants to see in response to number two here if we're only talking about discussions. These people aren't lawyers and they shouldn't have to hire lawyers to make this counter notification. This was designed to allow them to certify that it's their good faith belief that they can use it. YouTube is asking them to explain why they think it's okay. And you'll note they aren't asking that same thing of the claimants themselves. It's only the legal requirements. Identify it. Identify the video. Give us this statement and you're good. And then when you circle around for it, it's, oh, explain why? We got this statement from Sony that says you're illegally using it. Why don't you think you're illegally using it? Presumably just linking to virtual legality episodes is not good enough for YouTube. So what did you say? And I would love to ask the question of this person. What did they say to get this kind of statement? And why does YouTube have a form that says it's unclear to us whether you have a valid reason for filing a counter notification? That wasn't supposed to be within their ambit. That wasn't supposed to be what service providers were judging. But it makes sense. And it's unfortunate that it makes sense because what the counter notification process actually does here is it prevents the service provider from having liability for taking down the content in response to that official notice right so sony notifies them that there's a copyright infringement and if they take it down based on that notice then they're not liable for any contribution to the infringement that they might otherwise be liable for and that's part of statutory law and youtube wants to avoid that but all the dmca does in respect of a counter notification is say basically If you put this back up after you get a counter, then the person that had it taken down can't sue you for whatever liability you might have to them. And the fact of the matter is YouTube never had any liability to that person anyway. So it's no surprise that YouTube doesn't really honor counters, asks for higher levels of why to be explained to them with respect to the counter notifications because their baseline pose is... Well, the copyright claimant is probably right, and you have to prove your innocence to us. And I think that's anathema to how most of us think about the American jurisprudence system in any event, which is, no, that's not right. Someone just accuses me of a crime because copyright infringement is a crime, and then you assume they're correct, and then I have to explain why they're not. And I'm sympathetic to YouTube in part here. YouTube has a lot of bad actors on their channel. We've covered them in a number of virtual legality episodes. So they're trying to deal with those bad actors. But this strikes me as the incorrect way to do it. YouTube is part of this story because it should be as simple as saying, look, let's have a combat of certifications. They certify it's copyrighted. I certify that it isn't. Put it back up and they can sue me. And if they want to go that far, then we can have that conversation. And that's not a good place to be in if you're a small YouTuber either. But at least YouTube isn't just essentially allowing a copyright strike, which could jeopardize your channel on nothing but the certification of one party while ignoring the certification of the other. As you could probably tell again from the tone of my voice in this video, this is the kind of thing that frustrates somebody that believes in the overall concept of the laws here but sees them being used in practice in a way that disadvantages one side massively over the other side. And again, that doesn't mandate that you agree with anything that anybody that has been struck has said. In my opinion, every journalist, everybody that espouses any kind of opinion on anything should be out there decrying this kind of activity. It is a shame that this material got leaked out, but it did get leaked out. And if people want to talk about it, this isn't the right way to combat that. Continuing, the second half of this video, I wanted to talk about this concept of unpublished works. And I apologize that this comment is the one that I've singled out. There is no disrespect intended or implied here. This was just the most recent, and it covered what I wanted to talk about very succinctly. This is a comment that I have seen paraphrased in different language on my social media, in my DMs and elsewhere saying, Rick, you've got it wrong. The U.S. Supreme Court has held that generally there is no fair use exception to copying an unpublished work. The unpublished nature of a work tends to negate the defense of fair use. That's not quite right. And I don't blame anybody for trying to espouse these kinds of things. The unpublished nature of a work and the fact that it got stolen wrongly, is going to play into a fair use analysis because fair use at the end of the day is what we call an equitable principle under the law, that the courts get to decide that for principles of fairness and justice, these various things have to be allowed. And whenever you get into equitable principles, the court winds up taking into account the overall situation, and that will include, hey, did this party get their stuff stolen from it? that's a problem. We're going to lean against you being able to use things like fair use if it got stolen from it, if it's unpublished, if they don't want to publish it, if they were trying to keep it secret. Maybe it wasn't commercial at all. Maybe it was hidden love letters that they put in a bank vault that nonetheless got stolen and got released. And the courts will say, okay, fair use is an equitable kind of doctrine. We need to take the fact that it is unpublished, that it was stolen into account. That is correct. But what isn't correct is that there is no fair use exception to copying an unpublished work. That goes too broadly. As I've highlighted here at the bottom, the fact that a work is unpublished shall not itself bar a finding of fair use if such finding is made upon consideration of all the above factors. Said another way, because lawyers like to lawyer, what that says is just because it was unpublished, however it got into the public eye, The fact that it was unpublished doesn't mean that you can't every single time get fair use. But note, it also doesn't say the opposite. It doesn't say we can't take into account the fact that it is unpublished when we talk about this balancing test, right? We've talked about it in virtual legality before, but I thought it would be a useful exercise to kind of go through what a fair use analysis of this kind of thing would look like with respect to Joel and Ellie being abducted by aliens. So when a court decides to look at this, you've got a video, you've put up a screenshot of their abduction, you've put up a video that shows they're getting abducted by aliens, and the court would then say, okay, what was the purpose and character of the use? In particular, if you're criticizing it, if you're commenting on what is contained in those things, maybe it's the screenshot, maybe it's the way the direction of the cutscene scene is put together, that's generally going to be more allowed than not. If you're selling it, you've got a bigger problem, and selling it, through YouTube and advertising kind of creates that problem for you, but it's not the end of the story. It's a balancing test. The second part is the nature of the copyrighted work. If it's a creative work that didn't exist outside of the efforts of somebody like Sony or Naughty Dog, and if it's unpublished, that starts to lean towards Sony. That starts to lean towards it probably isn't fair use to use that. The amount and substantiality of the portion used, that's important. If you just show a screenshot for 20 seconds, that's low in amount. But also, part of this kind of evaluation is did you take the heart of the art in question? And in that particular instance, I, my understanding is the cutscenes show certain significant events that happen as part of this story, like Joel and Ellie being abducted by aliens. And that means that. That could actually lean towards Sony and Naughty Dog, even if you were only using a small part. And then the effect of the use upon the potential market. It's an unpublished commercial work. So what does that mean? On the one hand, it means, yeah, that could diminish the market. In fact, a lot of these commentators are actually trying to diminish the market. They're actually putting comments out there that say that X, Y, and Z plot point is bad. And you could see that in the thumbnails all across YouTube, even without knowing what the nature of the leaks are. So you can see that they're trying to kind of depress the potential market of the future work. That's going to go against them. However, the actual legal analysis here is, will anybody substitute your YouTube video for the work itself? And it's very difficult to argue that however many minutes of cutscenes and 26 seconds of a screenshot and what have you actually rise to the level of diminishing the market for the work outside of the fact that you don't like where the story goes. It's not a substitute for it. Nobody would say watching Geeks and Gamers is a substitute for playing The Last of Us Part Two. It's a matter of the effect of the commentary, but that isn't truly what the law is supposed to be addressing. Instead, the substitution for the market. Now, one of the things that popped up here is that I was trying to figure out where this notion was coming out in my social media, why people were mentioning this unpublished nature to me so often. And it appeared to be related to a couple of cases in the late 80s. This one in particular is from J.D. Salinger, and this case was about the fact that a biographer wound up finding some unpublished letters of Mr. Salinger and using them in the biography. And the estate, I believe, or maybe it was J.D. Salinger himself, winds up suing and saying, you can't use those things. Those are copyrighted and it's not fair use to quote them in the biography that you put together. As a matter of fact, it was this that kind of gave rise to this bit of language here. Before this, while that case was being decided, this language about unpublished works wasn't a part of the fair use provisions of the Copyright Act. As a matter of fact, you actually can see in the public law in 1992, a couple of years after that case, that Congress went so far as to make one singular amendment to that particular section that says, the fact that a work is unpublished shall not itself bar a finding of fair use if such finding is made upon consideration of all the above factors. When we see that in the law, we take note of it. It means that Congress, perhaps in its most strongly evidenced way, has shown that they disagree with the prior Supreme Court precedent and are trying to address it in the statutes that they are putting forth as the law of the land. See, a lot of the times when you get into a court case, you wind up having the court try to decide, try to decipher what Congress intended by the holistic nature of these various statutes. If this whole thing came into being all at once, Maybe this doesn't have quite the same push because Congress wasn't thinking about whatever the instant case is before the court. But in this particular instance, what we've got is direct evidence that Congress cared about this and they didn't want this kind of decision-making to rule the day. So what is that kind of decision-making? I think that's important. To discuss. So this case is from 1987. It has been at least partially overturned by a statutory amendment by Congress about five years later. But we can still understand what folks like Geeks and Gamers and elsewhere on the internet, whether they're on Reddit or Twitter, are dealing with when they're contemplating the fair use of an unpublished and now what Sony declares to be explicitly stolen set of materials says, after emphasizing the insulation of unpublished works from fair use under ordinary circumstances, again, remember that language that we just read isn't in the statute when this decision is being made, the court considers in turn each of the four factors identified by Congress as especially relevant in determining whether a use is fair. Reflecting its earlier discussion, the court gives special weight to the fact that the copied work is unpublished when considering the second factor, the nature of the copyrighted work. So that bit of blue language that we're looking at right now, that is what is essentially cut out of this decision by that statute amendment. There is no special weight to be given to the fact that it is unpublished. It's just normal weight for determining whether fair use should apply. So they analyze the purpose of the use. Hamilton's book, A Biography, fits comfortably within several of the statutory categories of uses illustrative of uses that can be fair. The book may be considered criticism, scholarship, and research. Critique, criticism, all these things are going to meet number one, and pretty strongly so. If you're criticizing, if you're commenting, if you're reporting the news, that's going to lean heavily towards fair use. Continuing on, in sum, we agree with the district court that the fair use factor weighs in Hamilton the biographer's favor. Nature of the copyrighted work. The fact that a work is unpublished is a critical element of its nature. The district judge considered the nature of the copyrighted work, especially its unpublished nature, primarily in rejecting the plaintiff's arguments that fair use was inapplicable to unpublished works. Since the copyrighted letters are unpublished, the second factor weighs heavily in favor of Salinger. Now, some of you might read this and say, hey, we got them. They added that section of the language into the fair use provision, so that doesn't count at all. That's not what's happening here. That still counts. What has happened is that it doesn't count on a kind of specialized basis. It doesn't get triple weight that it was unpublished when you're considering nature of the work. I will tell you right now, just kind of offhand, without being able to look at the facts and circumstances that relate to any specific video, that this second test, nature of the copyrighted work, is going to lean towards Sony and Naughty Dog almost entirely It is unpublished that leans towards them. It is a creative work that leans towards them. It's a story that they built with their own money that leans towards them. That second factor is going to lean towards them. Whether or not that leans towards them more than factor one, which clearly leans towards the YouTuber, is up to a court to decide. And that's a problem. That's a problem with the whole system, right? It's a gray area. But it does mean that right now, on the balance, Sony could probably say we considered fair use and we submitted our copyright strike in any event, as long as you used a screenshot or a bit of clips from the cutscenes that were released, amount and substantiality of the portion used, it is with regard to this third factor that we have the most serious disagreement with the district judge's legal analysis, both as to the pertinent standard and its application. As to the standard, we start, as did Judge Laval, by recognizing that what is relevant is the amount and substantiality of the copyrighted expression that has been used, not the factual content of the matter in the copyrighted works. Let's read that again. The third factor is the amount and substantiality of the copyrighted expression used and not the factual content of the material. As we've talked about in virtual legality, the clips are one thing. The script is one thing. The screenshots are one thing. That is the copyrighted expression. The character names, what happens to them, the facts underlying the narrative, certainly the facts of the leak and the facts that Sony has gone out and issued all of these takedown notices, those are not protected by copyright or any other aspect of the law. Now, interestingly, you can get too close to the sun. As this court says, however, that protected expression has been quote unquote used whether quoted verbatim or only paraphrased. We cannot be certain that Judge Laval included close paraphrases of the letters in his determination of the quantity of copyrighted material that has been used in the biography. And that makes sense, right? But note the use of the phrasing close. We're not talking about just paraphrasing the concept of what is said. You can say, Joel says I love you to Ellie, if there's a big long paragraph that explains that. That's not a paraphrase that should rise to the level of copyright infringement. But if you take the words and you swap two or three out, or you change sun for stellar body or something else that is obvious on its face, then the court is going to have a problem with the nature of what you used. The taking is significant not only from a qualitative standpoint, but from a qualitative one as well. The copied passages, if not the heart of the book, are at least an important ingredient of the book as it now stands. That's the other component that we talked about. To the extent that the cutscenes actually show really, really important stuff in the story, that weighs against you as well. So in Factor 3, if you just put up a screenshot of something and it was important, you've got an internal balancing test. You're probably allowed to use it in small bits. You're definitely allowed to just talk about the facts underlying it. You're allowed to paraphrase it as long as it's not too close to the language actually used. But if it's really, really important, that leans to Sony and Naughty Dog. You can see why fair use is no fun for any lawyer with a client sitting in front of them in their office. Here, the court says in sum, the third fair use factor weighs heavily in Salinger's favor. Finally, the effect on the market. The Supreme Court has called the fourth factor effect on the market for the copyrighted work the single most important element of fair use. It's supposed to be judged as a higher level of balancing. Proceeding from his conclusion that only a few fragments of the letters have been used in Hamilton's book, Judge Laval expressed the view that such use would have no effect on the marketability of the letters. Concluding as we do that substantial portions of the letters have been copied, we do not share the district judge's view that marketability of the letters will be totally unimpaired. To be sure the book would not displace the market for the letters. So the fourth use factor weighs slightly in the author's favor. What we would be considering is Sony and Naughty Dog. This is going to be, if this ever went to actual court, this would be the trickiest part for the court to decide. Because what you have is Sony apparently deliberately striking down those that are the most vociferous about how much they dislike the leaked material, the actual narrative content of what the leaks represent. So they ostensibly have the strongest argument that that would affect the market and that maybe if you said nice things about it, it wouldn't affect the market. But the law isn't designed to be opinion oriented. We need to be very careful about that, right? That starts to get into real First Amendment considerations. This specific law, fair use, is not designed to be if you say nice things, it's fine. And if you say bad things, it's not. Certain courts could undoubtedly read it that way. Sony certainly wants to read it that way. But we have to be careful about that because that's not the intent. And what really is the intent is this kind of displacing the market. And so I don't think you'd ever arrive at a place where the fourth fair use factor would weigh heavily in Sony and Naughty Dog's factor uh, in favor. But there would be a fight about which direction it should go. And as you can see, as we get to the end of this here, If you are using a screenshot or a clip, Sony has at least a colorable claim. They aren't insane to go and say fair use shouldn't apply to this use. Even if I might think, okay, it's critique. It doesn't change the market. You didn't use a lot of it. And even though it's a creative unpublished work, that's only one out of four factors. So you should be okay. And even if you would win that at the end of the day in a court of law, all that Sony has to do to make their strike their strike notice, their, their DMCA takedown notice, and to be within the broad rights that they have under their abilities under the DMCA is to have a good faith belief that they would win a fair use claim. And I think it's a close enough question on a lot of this that I wouldn't necessarily want to fight Sony or Naughty Dog if I was using a screenshot or a cutscene. If I'm only discussing the underlying facts, I think it's a slam dunk, and it should be. Because we can't have a statute like this. We can't have the Copyright Act, the rights of a copyright holder, impinge on the First Amendment right to freedom of speech. And that's a very important consideration. Or as the court kind of finishes off here, to deny a biographer like Hamilton the opportunity to copy the expressive content of unpublished letters is not, as they contend, to interfere in any significant way with the process of enhancing public knowledge of history or contemporary events. The facts may be reported. Salinger's letters contain a number of facts that students of his life and writings will no doubt find of interest. And Hamilton is entirely free to fashion a biography that reports those facts. The letters can be hidden. They could state something about a secret, illicit love affair. And as long as you aren't taking the copyrighted expression out of them, you can still report on the existence of that love affair. You can still report on what it means what it might mean for the literary scene in that decade, what it might mean for what came out of the writings of J.D. Salinger after that illicit love affair. Anything like that, you can report on, you can critique, you can comment on in your biography or now on YouTube, but you can't cross the line. You can't fly too close to the sun and use too much copyrighted material in a way that will affect the market and in a way that is something that the court is unhappy with. Now, it's worth noting, the only reason we arrived at discussing this particular case is because this is the case that stood for the notion that unpublished works were to get special consideration. That essentially, if you read this holistically in its entirety, there's basically nothing that is unpublished that would fall under a fair use analysis. But Congress wanted to address that. They went so far as to pass and execute a law that specifically addressed that. Now, could it be better? Could it be more on point to what I think they're trying to achieve to say it shouldn't be given special weight, that just because it's unpublished, it won't be a bar, doesn't quite get you there. But Congress, the political sausage, is a confusing and difficult process. And you can see in any given thing, even a single sentence, the nuances of compromise and discussions amongst both sides of the aisle in 1992. So it's no surprise that you get something that's a little bit more mealy-mouthed a little less on point that Congress might have addressed, but it does address it nonetheless. The fact that this is unpublished, the fact that it is stolen doesn't change the fact that it is newsworthy, that it's worthy of reporting, that adding critique and commentary and reporting on the existence of that news is something that the law purports to value and to allow. And that's important for all of this. So yes, this video is about a lot of things related to The Last of Us leaks, but if you take nothing else away from it, take away the fact that it's not a fait accompli, it's not a done deal that what you might be seeing out there is worthy of copyright strike. What you are seeing is something that falls into the vast gray area of what fair use is, and because every bit of that gray area advantages the copyright holder, including YouTube entering into its own kind of additional burden of proof to mandate that your counters explain why you might fall under fair use, then everything that leans towards that copyright holder is part of a problematic system and a system I would like to see reformed, not just because of The Last of Us, not just because of video games, but because we need to be able to express ideas any way that the information winds up coming out. This has been virtual legality for today. Thank you so much for stopping in. Thank you so much to all our new subscribers over this past four-day period. I very much appreciate you checking out the channel and to everybody on the internet who's actually wound up referencing the Hoaglaw YouTube channel and here in Virtual Legality, including uh, Yongye and uh, Bellular Gaming and all these other places. I very much appreciate it. Please do check out the rest of the videos that we have on the channel. We talk about Sony, yes, but we also talk about movies and pop culture and business and law in general, hopefully to help illuminate and educate what you see in the news every day and all around you. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for checking it out. And if you listen to it in its podcast form, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality.